helping the acquisition workforce maintain a decisive edge. This is the Defense Acquisition University podcast. Welcome to DAU Podcast. My name is Anthony Rotolo, and we're continuing our series with the JADIF Coronavirus Task Force. That's the Joint Acquisition Task Force for Coronavirus. My guest today is Colonel Barry Castro. He is the Senior Military Assistant to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition. He served as the Chief of Staff for the Joint Acquisition Task Force. Colonel Castro, welcome. Thank you, Anthony. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm thrilled to have you with us. This has been a very enlightening series, an issue that has gained popular awareness the world over. And it's fascinating to get a look into how the biggest organization in the world coordinating itself has done so. Now, today we're talking about leadership. We want to discuss leading through a pandemic. And uh, before we get into the meat of that discussion, I just want to ask you a couple of preliminaries. How was it that you became a part of the Joint Acquisition Task Force? No, thanks, Anthony. Um, so I had uh, recently graduated uh, last summer from the National Defense University's uh, Eisenhower School, and was assigned here uh, to be the senior military assistant to Mr. Fahey, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition. On March 25th, Ms. Lord announced the establishment of the Joint Acquisition Task Force and assigned Mr. Fahey's principal deputy, Ms. Stacy Cummings, to lead that effort as the director. And that afternoon, Mr. Fahey said, why don't you go down there and help her out? And I think his last comments were, I think you'll be back in 30 days. And uh, seven months later, here we are. Uh, This sounds very familiar. You know, 15 days to slow the virus. It's turned into a longer bargain for all of us. But that's, you know, this is unprecedented and we had no script for this, really. Now, on top of, of course, the coronavirus challenge, the adaptation to the situation, you rapidly had to create a new organization. And what a leadership challenge. You're building this new structure from scratch, all the while doing it remotely. How did you tackle that? How did you get your arms around that? That's a great, it's a great question, Anthony, because it's, it's hard to imagine knowing how far we've come now uh, to go back in time in those first uh, few days. And um, we didn't know how we could help. We didn't know what tools we had available. We were just giving a simple mission, a no-fail mission, which was a go help the interagency out. And so we literally on day one uh, established a telecon, and seven months uh, later, we're we're actually pretty good at, at working remotely and working through these. But this is right at the onset of the telecon. So our lines crashed. Um, we couldn't get the numbers out. We had a slew of problems that we had to work through, uh, not to mention the challenges of working with people without having the benefit of something simple like a whiteboard. That first call, we asked for volunteers from each of the services, and the response was just incredible, where each of the services, the Air Force sent me a list of officers from the Rapid Capability Office. The Navy sent me a list of, hey, these are program managers and and contracting officer specialists that uh, pick who you need. We knew we had folks that were uh, the services were offering support. 
We didn't know where to place them. As we started to understand the problem, as you've heard in, in the first and second podcasts, we built this structure around the product leads. We knew that the nation needed ventilators. We needed knew that they needed N95 masks. And so we picked an Army PM whose last job was being the program manager for the Abrams tank to, to manage ventilators. And we picked a Navy civilian acquisition professional whose job was being a program manager for ships to go learn everything he could about N95 masks. And so we sent them in to touch base with the FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. And then as they came back, they said, look, I need some help. I need a couple of folks that could help. And so we went back on the call, asked for volunteers. And so within two months, we had these cross-departmental teams of acquisition professionals where you had, in Jared Valu's case, who is our product lead for the N95 mass, a Navy ship program manager. He had an Army acquisition contracting specialist on his staff. He had an Air Force rapid capabilities officer as part of his team. Most of these folks had never even met each other, but they would. we started creating these cellular structures built around these product leads that proved incredibly successful. So that was the design of JADIF. It began with product lines and then what you called a cellular structure around it? That's how it evolved. I wouldn't say that anybody walked into this designing an organizational structure. It was really responsive to the need that we saw. We immediately sent a, a liaison to the Federal Emergency Management Agency and one to the Health and Human Services to get embedded with them and really start to understand what their needs were. And they were acquisition professionals, so we spoke the same language, and they could start to lay out what FEMA and what HHS, what were their hard problems. And so we started aligning product leads to that. Later, as we started building more product leads, we identified a need to have functional working groups that would support these product leads. And so we ultimately end, ended up standing up uh, an industry vetting portal team built primarily with existing infrastructure that was already existing within the Air Force and their AFWORKS portal. We established a joint additive manufacturing working group that was cross-representative of the department's 3D printing and additive manufacturing experts. And then as FEMA identified a need, they were literally doing cold calls, phone calling vendors that had submitted proposals, for example, to sell a 95 mask. Somebody needed to vet these. We also identified a need to understand the supply chain in each of these critical areas for ventilators and masks. So we stood up, again, using existing DOD resources, a supply chain illumination working group, a team that could do a deep dive into a company or manufacturer's supply chain to see where, if there was a reputable vendor, if there was risk. So this is a very complicated business. You're establishing and vetting new supply chains. You're doing it in a complicated fashion across agencies. How did you go about working with them, establishing battle rhythms, processes, and SOPs? You know, I would say the the way we organized, you know, we knew that this was a temporary structure and the task force by its very definition, we knew that this was going to be a temporary structure. We also didn't have the standardized processes and procedures 
that you would fall in when you walk in and be assigned to an existing organization. This was initially a really challenging part, but it, it proved a benefit in that if we needed somebody to do something or, or get a mission accomplished, it was a simple telecom between key leaders that um, provided the resources that already existed within the department and put the most qualified and capable person or capability to focus on that problem. So our battle rhythms and processes and our standard operating procedures, those evolved over time. When we first started, we were having a meeting every day, again, with hundreds of folks on the telecom. And as we matured in this process, we started streamlining uh, things out. This is really out of necessity. It's important to remember that this was a loose conglomeration of acquisition professionals. They each had their own chain of command, if you will. Uh, nobody in the Air Force worked um, for anybody at DOD, not directly. They were volunteers. They were cross-attached to different organizations. And so the ability to bring folks on very quickly, but also streamline our processes was absolutely critical for us to be successful. Yeah, it sounds like it was a very fluid situation. You were sort of right-sizing all of the structure as you went, as it evolved. So obviously it was very successful. In previous discussions we've had, it became very, very clear just how successful as we enumerated the per annum output equivalent of what you were doing in just a few months' time, the ventilators and respirators, the PPE. It's a stunning achievement. So there's no doubt that this JADIF was successful. What factors in particular made it so successful? So the factors that made the joint acquisition task force successful is two main things. Number one, we all had a no-fill mission, and we were all speaking the same language. As acquisition professionals, we understood each other. And despite the fact that we come from different service cultures with different missions, we all speak acquisition, and we could easily apply our profession to the problem at hand. How to focus those efforts was one of the biggest challenges that we had Another factor that I think was instrumental in ensuring the uh, JADF success as an organization was we didn't have the standard operating procedures that uh, you would have when you walk into an organization and are already established. It sounds like a daily act of improvisation, you know, absent those SOPs, making it up as you went along in, in the best way. I mean, knowing who the talent or skill set where that resided, just marshalling those resources as the situation unfolded. When you talk about the factors that made the joint acquisition task force successful, there's so many and all the other folks that you've interviewed in the podcast um, have talked about that. But I think the key piece here is, you know, we've got such a breadth and depth of acquisition professionals throughout the department, uh, and each one is just exceptional at, at different things. As we started understanding the problem set within the ANR agency and how we could support them, the most successful piece is just really placing the right organization and the right people to the right problem. And I'll give you an example is uh, the Air Force, and they're allowing us to use the AFWorks portal where we could receive information from industry that was interested in supporting this pandemic. Um, that was one of the, the key and critical aspects. And then, of course, from the Army, the Joint Program Executive Office for Chemical, Biological, Radiological, and, and Nuclear Defense. 
just a, a breadth of experience and and technical subject matter expertise in this very you know medical and pharmaceutical uh, field. So having those experts volunteer and having them to help us understand the landscape within the interagency was critical. And given that all of what you just described, when that intersects with the acquisition workforce, what is it about the skill sets of acquisition that are so unique, that were so effective? You know, this experience really helped me appreciate more than ever just the breadth and depth of experience across the rest of the services and across all of the DOD acquisition professionals. Each of the services develops their uniformed acquisition professionals a little bit differently. The Air Force, for example, may bring acquisition officers from commissioning into the acquisition corps. The Navy and the Marine Corps will have folks that do operations and they'll get trained in acquisition and they may be a PM, for example, and then go back to the operations. And the Army is kind of somewhere in between where all Army officers that are acquisitions start off in operations. And then about mid-career, we transition into acquisition and remain there. And that's so that we're, we don't just understand the warfighter. Uh, we are warfighters. But the things that, that are common to all of us is, number one, we have all the basic education from the Defense Acquisition University, and it works. The other piece is the depth of education. For example, I've been in the Army uh, as an officer for about 22 years. The last 10 of those has been a, as an acquisition officer. I calculated that about two and a half of those years has been in a classroom, in a seat, actively learning something that is directly tied to being an acquisition professional. And the only thing remarkable about that is, is how incredibly common that is across all of our services and all of our acquisition professionals. So the, the depth of our education and the commonality of our, our education is a critical piece. The other part that I tell you is, as acquisition officers, we, we are exposed to those joint counterparts early and often through the Defense Acquisition University. And acquisition officers operate in an enterprise as part of their profession. So, for example, I mentioned all Army officers start off in operations. My counterparts who uh, I grew up with that stayed on as armor officers or infantry officers, while they were majors, they're working in uh, our Army formations that are primarily mechanistic and hierarchical, and, and it's pretty clear to determine who's in charge and who isn't. In an enterprise approach, the key to success is working with uh, within an enterprise uh, with external stakeholders that you can't direct. I want to get the point across that you know, it's a different dynamic, and this really helped us out understanding the interagency and working through that. Yeah, a couple of points come out very clearly from what you've said. The acquisition training has been continuous and pervasive through careers. And as part of that, you're already prepared and adapted to working in enterprise interagency situations. So when this thing came along, even though it was on an enormous scale, it sounds like you had the right mindset to sort of hit the ground running. No, absolutely. You know, early on, uh, yeah, I mentioned earlier, 
when we first stood up, we really didn't know who our requirements owner was, how many masks, as an example, we needed to buy, who the, the right decision makers were. This was a pretty common understanding across the Joint Acquisition Task Force, and it really didn't uh, bother us too much because we're used to dealing with ambiguity. We're used to dealing with a multitude of stakeholders and understanding how to work through that to achieve our mission. So I have to imagine in the early stages, you're in to this just a, a month or two, the pressure, the urgency had to be enormous. How did you ensure that you were getting the agility and the responsiveness that was expected? You know, Anthony, it's a great question because now we look at the JADF and, you know, the defense acquisition cell, which has assumed its responsibility, and it is doing just that, very efficient and responsive. But when we first stood up with a telecom with hundreds of people on, we didn't even have an organizational structure. And as we started building these teams around the product leads and building the working groups to support the product leads and streamlining our processes and fine-tuning our skills, it was akin to building combat power, you know, just like the joint force would start to build combat power before executing a combat mission. That's kind of like we felt. But there was a lot of frustration, a lot of palpable tension where the services or the agencies would say, why, why can't we just go in and help them? And it took some time. It took some time. Uh, but you knew that once they unleashed us once we finally got the request from the interagency to actually unleash what we do best, which is acquisition at scale, that it was going to be an incredible result. And I can only imagine what kind of pressure that was. So from a leadership perspective, what was the biggest challenge? What was the kind of thing that kept you up at night the most? Well, that's a great question um, because it just depends on what phase of the joint acquisition task force we were in. You know, initially, I had to learn Ms. Cummings, who was the director of the joint acquisition task force. Uh, nobody said become her chief of staff. I was really just told, go help her out. As we grew into this process, we didn't have the overhead. It was just a small group of people from uh, essentially Mr. Fahey's office, uh, Mr. Steve Morani, who came out of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Sustainment, also under Ms. Lord's organization. He was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Material Readiness. He came on as Ms. Cummings' deputy. We knew that we needed a flat organization, and Ms. Cummings was really the leader in establishing that. There were so many lessons learned, and it was really by watching her and our other senior leaders operate. Ms. Cummings had her Ms. Cummings had her work cell phone on her signature block that said, if you can't reach me, I'm no longer doing my previous duties as the principal deputy to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition. I'm now on the Joint Acquisition Task Force. If you need to reach me, here's my cell phone. And you can imagine organizations at this level when you have senior executives, they build organizational structures to protect their leaders' times. And we didn't have that. One of the biggest challenges I faced was there were so many lessons learned there. And I learned in large part just by watching Ms. Cummings operate. She was completely accessible to anyone. When you're operating in an organization like uh, higher headquarters, like the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition, there's processes in place that make sure that when your principal receives something, that you've had numerous sets of eyes look at it. 
We didn't have that luxury. There was no safety net. It was the Joint Acquisition Task Force, a small group of front office folks, me, and then Ms. Cummings. And what I found through that is it was okay to fail. I had to let mistakes go and she would catch them. And we developed this process where we could bounce ideas off each other. And through that process, I also learned that it was okay to accept incomplete information or incomplete packages from folks that were sending it up that I wasn't being the bottleneck. Having a flat organization means a commonality of thought across all levels. And in order to do that, we all had to be able to see the problem set in the same way. And we didn't have time to make sure something was perfect before we got it in front of our principals. You know, we didn't know what we needed, but we started developing reports and we started saying, okay, well, let's make this a standard operating procedure. Let's make this a standard report. There wasn't a safety net. Anything that got by me went straight to Ms. Cummings. And if she didn't catch it, then it went straight to Ms. Lord or to one of our interagency partners. And Ms. Cummings' leadership showed us that it was okay to make mistakes. She would look through things, and if there were changes, she'd make them. And she was incredibly gracious, and that allowed us to grow as a team and build the team so that all of us had a common vision of the things that she was looking for and the dialogue she was having at the most strategic levels. And that helped me shape the information and the deliverables and our reporting mechanisms so that they were relevant to the strategic problems that we were trying to attack. In a normal situation, there's a good function of bureaucracy where it does function as a a safety net, a slowing down mechanism to make sure that things are right before you make another move forward. Our government is designed that way, which is why even though we see our representatives accused of not getting much done, we are designed for deliberation and slowing things down and discussion and debate before things move forward. But in a situation where speed is the order of the day, I'm hearing that this was a flat organization and that you were given permission to just fail forward and not have everything be perfect with every jot and tittle taken care of every step of the way. Am I catching the flavor of this thing? Absolutely. I'll tell you that how a leader reacts uh, when you do make mistakes sets the precedence. It sets the tone for how the rest of the organization acts when they have the next go-round. And all of our leaders showed us that they were willing to underwrite our mistakes. We knew we had a no-fail mission. We weren't going to fail it. And so there was this level of patience of saying, this is critical. We need it right now. But let's take a tactical pause and talk about what it is that we need. And relaying that information across such a diverse enterprise of an organization in almost real time through our product leads so that we were able to correct those things and not repeat the same mistakes. It sounds like this JADF experience has actually shaped your own leadership philosophy. It has been one of the most uh, incredibly challenging and incredibly rewarding experiences of my professional career uh, just being part of this. I feel that personally and professionally, I've grown an incredible amount just being part of this. 
Colonel Castro, this was an amazing feat, and I hear a lot of emotion in your answers. I have to imagine you're pretty thankful to the organization and many people. I wonder if you would like to take an opportunity to identify any persons or things that you relied upon the most, anything that you're most proud of? Wow. Um, You know, first off, I'd tell you that I just happened to be in this job when my boss said, go help Miss Cummings out. And I truly mean this, that any one of our acquisition professionals could have done what I did. And we saw that because as product leads transitioned out and they got called back, we would just do another net call and and another acquisition professional would come in. And we really never missed a beat. With that said, That challenge that we had at the beginning of standing up is one of the reasons that this organization was able to look at itself and our lessons learned captured that um, should another event like this happen, that we didn't want to take the time and potentially lose precious lives in trying to stand up a new organization. And that's why we've already started incorporating our lessons learned by establishing the defense assisted acquisition cell under the joint rapid acquisition cell. Nobody else could have done what the acquisition professionals of the joint acquisition task force could have done. We spoke this common language. We had the business acumen. We could intuitively understand cost, schedule, performance, supply chain, risk management, and constraints. And we were able to understand working within an enterprise of the interagency. I've learned so much from the services and really having that interaction with the interagency and the senior executive leadership that I've certainly grown personally and professionally from it. And as I talk to other members of the Joint Acquisition Task Force, and I think as you have too, I think they'll let go of those comments. That really is a theme that's resonated through these interviews. We really do have exceptional acquisition workforce. Some of your remarks have been echoed throughout the discussions that many people could have handled these assignments because the training has been, as we discussed, continuous, pervasive, very equipping throughout your careers. So I want to thank you for sharing all of your experiences with us. Our guest today has been Colonel Barry Castro. Colonel Castro, thank you again for visiting with us. Thank you, Anthony. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more resources, visit the Defense Acquisition University online at dau.edu.